glad for us to be gathered together to worship the Lord together. If um, gathering in a church and singing songs like that seems a little strange to you, it's okay. We're unapologetically weird about celebrating Jesus. Um, He is the one that brings us together. He's the one that makes it possible for us to praise God, to glorify God. And uh, so uh, if you're a guest with us, really our biggest aim is not to try to impress you with who we are, but we really want for Jesus to be the one that you walk away with being struck with how great and glorious our King is. And so we have the privilege of looking into uh, Luke chapter 5 this morning. We're doing an expository sermon series through Luke's Gospel, and we find ourselves here in chapter 5. I know, I know we're, we're not usually um, used to interactive sermons. Trust me, it won't be too interactive, but how many of you, these stories of Jesus healing the leper and then healing the guy let down through the roof, you're familiar with, you've heard before. Put up a hand, all right? Most. Uh, anyone who this is kind of a new story, you haven't heard this before? Okay, so I think we're all familiar with these stories. Um, so here lies the challenge, is coming to a passage that we're familiar with and not just saying, oh yeah, I know that, oh yeah, I've heard that. And so I really do want to encourage us to lean in with humble hearts and open minds to see what God would have for us in here to have a fresh enjoyment of God through Christ this morning. Each year, Time Magazine issues, uh, makes a special issue called the 100 Most Influential People. Anybody enjoy reading through that or find yourself chuckling through that or curious through that magazine? Some of you are saying, shaking your heads, you have no interest, okay? I think it's kind of interesting how one publication chooses out of a world of, what, 8 billion people, Plus, and says, here's 100. I don't even know what percentage that is. I should have done some math. Some of you math geniuses know it's like 0.00 whatever percent. These are the 100 most influential people, and they organize them in different categories. I didn't know this. I just kind of thought it was just a list of 100 folks, but they categorize them in in different uh, sections. Uh, Sections such as artists, innovators, titans, leaders, icons, and pioneers. I wonder how many people they've listed you would know of or know about. Here's a little test for us this morning, okay? For example, under artists, they list some people such as this. Michael B. Jordan, not Michael Jordan, the basketball guy, but Michael B. Jordan. Drew Barrymore, Ali Wong, Austin Butler, and Steve Lacey. And there's a few others. Did you recognize any of those names? Maybe. Under icons, some of the names they list are King Charles, Brittany Griner, Mara Jones, Shannon Watts. Did you recognize any of those names, maybe? Under leaders, some of the names they list are Elena Zelensky, Janet Yellen, Joe Biden, Samuel Alito, Cindy McCain. Maybe you recognize some of those names. I hope you did. For the people you did recognize, How did you recognize them? It's likely you recognize them based on something they've done, something about them that describes who they are through what they've done, something that's put them on the map in popularity so that they're notable and they were chosen to be on this list of 100. For example, under Titans, Time Magazine lists Elon Musk. What is he known for? Well, we could probably list a couple of things, Tesla, SpaceX, most recently the purchase of Twitter, which is now called X. 
And there's probably a variety of emotions that come to mind as you think about some of these characters. They can be quite polarizing, can't they? Well, imagine with me that Time magazine issued this 100 most influential people back in the year A.D. 33. I have no doubt that Jesus of Nazareth would have been on that list. No doubt. Although it's a bit challenging. How would you categorize Jesus on that list? Where would you expect Time magazine to categorize Jesus that year? Would you think of him as an innovator? Or maybe a leader? Would you think of him as an artist? He's a carpenter. Maybe he made some great furniture. Maybe an icon? Or would you consider him a pioneer? Or perhaps you think that he best fits under the category of titan? We're in this expository sermon series in Luke 5, and we know that Luke, the author, wrote this because he tells us why he wrote it. He tells us in chapter 1 that he wrote so that his readers could have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. So in other words, Luke wants us to be certain about who Jesus is. Who is he? And in Luke chapter 5, verses 12 through 26, we are given two stories that are aimed at showing us something incredibly important about who Jesus is. It's very important you put Jesus in the right category, so to speak, in your life. And it's incredibly important for us to understand who Jesus is because if you and I are going to live the lives God intended us to do, to have, to experience, we must understand appropriately and rightly who Jesus really is. So we're going to look at these two stories together. Look at the sermon will be put in those two sections, story one, story two, and what I'm going to try to do is help lift out of this passage the aim that I believe Luke has as a writer for us as readers to understand who Jesus is. These really aren't stories that are just sensational, kind of like um, J.K. Rowling or uh, in, in like Harry Potter that occasionally you throw in some magic tricks to kind of keep the readers interested, right? It's not like that. What Luke is doing is recording stories that are actual fact about who Jesus is because they reveal, they reveal what he's done so we understand who he is. And then how we respond to who he is is one of the biggest things in your entire life. So, chapter 5, verses 12 through 16, we read the story about how Jesus cleanses a leper. Jesus cleanses a leper. Um, this word leprosy, right? This man comes to Jesus. He describes it as a man full of leprosy. This, this term leprosy, we're all probably thinking about what is in modern day called Hansen's disease, which is a deadening of the nerves. And eventually what happens is you, can't, you don't know that you've been injured. And so an injury goes unnoticed and it gets infected. And in severe cases, it can cause bodily disfigurement. But leprosy was kind of a a catch-all category back in the Bible times for a multitude of different skin diseases and conditions. Um, Because these skin diseases uh, were often contagious, according to Old Testament ceremonial law, which if you really want to read that, you'll find it in Leviticus. Just search for clean or unclean in Leviticus, and it'll pop all sorts of verses up. They were ceremonially unclean. People that had these skin conditions or diseases were ceremonially unclean. That meant that they could not gather in the temple, which means that they could not be near the presence of God. 
I know we live in a different age with the coming of Jesus and, the, the, and then Jesus rising from the grave and going back to heaven and the Spirit of God coming. But in Old Testament times, if you wanted to be near the presence of God, you had to go to one place, the temple. And these people were forbidden to enter there. They were not allowed to worship, to be involved with the worshiping community of Israel. They were outcasts. They had to stay away. They were not allowed in cities or towns either. This means that they were entirely dependent upon others through begging, but they couldn't like be on major thoroughfares in the city. They had to be on the outskirts of the city because they weren't allowed into the towns or cities. No one could touch them, and they weren't allowed to touch others or even get near them, so they were outcasts socially, economically, and spiritually. Lepers were emotionally and socially cut off from others. So much so that if they were happened to be near others, they had to walk around with their hair down, with, their, with clothes torn, with their upper lip covered, and they had to shout, unclean, to remind others and to warn others, stay away. This is that, this man that comes to Jesus, that is his life. So how this man got into the city or made his way near Jesus is a bit of a mystery. You can imagine how desperate this person was to take such great risks to himself and to others to find his way to Jesus. He finds his way to Jesus. He falls on his face in front of him and he begs Jesus. He says, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. Now, pause there. Does that surprise you? Is that what you would have expected this leprous man to ask for? Make me clean. I mean, if it was me, I would be saying, heal me. Wouldn't that be what you say? Heal me. And yet, Luke described, or Luke records, that the words that this man spoke were, if you can, you can make me clean. So what's happening here? Well, Luke is highlighting, and again, we lose some of this in our modern-day culture because we're so individualistic. We kind of have our own little castles, little bubbles, little lives, and we kind of go through life our own way with you know, ordering what we want off the menu, listening to our, our customized playlist with our, social, with our hand-picked, group of friends. And, but in this day, everything for people socially, economically, spiritually was communal. It was together. And so what Luke is highlighting here is he's highlighting that for this person, his greatest burden, this leprosy, the greatest burden for him was the isolation that it caused from others and the isolation that it put between him and being able to draw near to the presence of God with the worshiping community. If he were made clean, again, you have the ceremonial and, and this idea of ceremonial cleanness that would described in Leviticus under the Old Testament code. If he were to be declared clean, he would no longer be isolated and cut off from everyone. And he would have the ability to gather with the worshiping community in the temple. So he asked the Lord, make me clean. Restore me. Let me come back. Let me be with others. Let me draw near to God. All of that was wrapped up in this request. And of course it included remove the leprosy because that's what was causing him to be unclean. What Jesus does next is astonishing in verse 13. And we kind of all just take this in stride because we're kind of like, well, it's Jesus. He's got the magic touch. So obviously he's going to you know, heal. He's going to reach out and touch this dude and heal him. I mean, come on. That's what Jesus does, right? My friends, we are missing what was going on here with the backdrop of Old Testament expectations with when, well, let me, let me get to it. He, you see in verse 13, the man begs him in verse 13, it says, Jesus, 
stretched out his hand and touched him. A deliberate action. It wasn't accidental. Jesus reaches out and touched him, and then Jesus says, I will be clean. And the man was immediately cleansed from his disease. Immediately. It wasn't like, hey, I think you're responding well to this medication. Give it a couple more weeks and you should be clear. It was immediate. And Jesus tells him, go to the priest and begin the process of the priest going through this ceremony to declare you clean so you can be reintegrated into the worshiping community. So what is happening here is, what are we supposed to learn about who Jesus is and who he really is? Well, to answer that, think back to the days, not too long ago, when COVID made the world crazy, right? It blew up all of our lives, didn't it? Everything became complicated and difficult and risky and scary. Remember that? Remember certain groups, sizes of groups were were forbidden. You couldn't be in groups too big, so all these parties and everything else got adjusted and we had to do social distancing. I mean, do you still go to some places where there's like circles in the ground or you stand here, stand here, stand here, right? We had masks. If you were exposed to COVID, you had to go through a particular you know, routine or quarantine yourself for a certain number of days to make sure that you weren't infected so that you didn't inadvertently infect others. And then if you did have COVID, there was a certain protocol that you had to go through to make sure that you weren't making others infected and, and protect and all of that, okay, Right? I know, not fun, right? In all of that, no one was walking around people who were infected. Like, you could go get your immunizations. And friends, I'm not trying to blow your hearts up with your reactions to all of the stuff that went on, okay? But if you wouldn't go to a place to get an immunization, a COVID shot, and there was somebody standing there that said, I got you, man. I'll touch you, and I'll make you clean. Right? We would think if somebody was doing that, walking around, Everybody who's got COVID, walk up to me, I'll touch you, and I will cure you. What would you think of that person? You would think they're stupid. Maybe, maybe you would be kinder. You'd think they're confused. Because we get it, right? We get it that a contagion, you don't just remove something that's contagious merely by being present and touching. Even if you were immune to the disease yourself, you can't go around and just touch people and start cleansing people, right? We understand that. So Jesus, what Jesus is doing, we understand that a contagion is what will infect you. You who are contagion-free, even if you're immune, you will not reverse the sickness, the disease, the uncleanness. And that's exactly what Jesus does. He turns everything upside down. When Jesus touches this man, he shatters all the categories of the day. Because according to ceremonial law in the Old Testament, you can read it in Leviticus, whenever something clean would come in contact with something unclean, which one would win? Okay, it's 50-50 chance here, right? If something clean came in contact with something unclean, which one would win? The unclean. Which means that what was clean, once it came in contact with what was unclean, now you've got two things that are unclean. That's how the Old Testament code went, without exception. And then it would tell, here's the, here's, the, here's the process you need to go through, the days and the, and the steps to be, to be cleansed so that ceremonially, ceremonially you can come back and be reintegrated with the worshiping community. In other words, what happens here is that since Jesus touched something unclean, what then should happen to Jesus? He should be considered what? Unclean, right? 
But is that what happened? No. The absolute opposite happened. And everyone was there to see it. Everyone was assuming, oh, he's touched this leper. Jesus is unclean. But something spectacular happens, and it turns everything upside down. All the categories of the day were demolished because when Jesus touched this person, this man was cleansed. Jesus did not have to go through the process of becoming, going from unclean to clean. He remained clean and he cleansed the one who was unclean. Why? What is Jesus demonstrating in this? What Luke wants us to understand is that Jesus is the one who makes the unclean clean. Jesus is the one who makes the unclean clean. And that matters for all of us. What we have in this story is a powerful demonstration that the worst uncleanness in us is no match for Jesus. No match. Jesus makes the unclean clean. In other words, think of it this way. You can't gross Jesus out. You can't. And I believe in the story, what's happening here is that the skin disease of leprosy is a, is in the story is acting as a symbol. It's analogous to sin. And it's not just, I'm not just being kind of spiritual in my approach to this because the story that led right up to this was Jesus with the catch of fish. He tells them, go out, put your nets out. We've been out all night. We didn't catch anything. Go out and do it. And they catch a big group of fish. And, and Peter responds to Jesus in that moment when they get this huge draught of fish. Something miraculous happened. And what does Peter say to Jesus? What does he do? You remember this? You can cheat and look back in chapter 5 a little bit. Jesus, or Peter is struck and overwhelmed with a sense of what? His own sinfulness. Peter recognizes, I'm unclean. I have no business being in the presence of this person, of this man, of this divinity. And then Luke goes on into this, into this story and says, I'm going to pick, I'm going to show a story of the worst, the most gross kind of person you could meet in society. Somebody who has leprosy. And Jesus touches and cleanses them. And so I believe that leprosy here is analogous to sin and what sin does to us. It doesn't mean that this man had leprosy because he was a sinner. He's like, he was, this was some bad karma going on in his life. No, but our sinful nature, our natural inclination towards defiance against God makes us all unclean. We are separated from God's presence and prevented from having a relationship with him because of our sin. We have this disease of sin. And sin interferes and wreaks havoc and it destroys our ability to relate to God. And guess what? It also destroys our ability to relate to others, doesn't it? Our sin is what wreaks havoc and what makes us kind of cast people out of the villages, so to speak, of our own life. Or have us get cast out of other people's villages of their life, right? Through hatred and envy and strife and and conflict and all the stuff that sin just wreaks havoc on, right? It wreaks havoc between us. It socially distances us from each other and it prevents us from relating to God. We are unclean. And so what we discover in this story is that no matter how defiled you are, no matter how stained you are, no matter how tainted, no matter who you are or what you've done, no matter what your record is, the moment Jesus touches you, you are made clean and fit for the presence of God. How is that possible? How? Everybody in this day would have been scratching their heads. How in the world is this possible? It's because, right, I mean, what what does religion offer us? Right, when you think of worldwide religions, they offer, here is a path, 
Do this, and you will get this result. You'll get, you'll get enlightenment, you'll get heaven, you'll get paradise, you'll get something good. Follow these rules, obey these laws, do this, fulfill these requirements, walk this path, do these steps, and you'll get to heaven. But Jesus is not offering us an alternative religion. Jesus is offering us himself. He's not giving us a path to walk or things to do to make ourselves fit for God. Jesus comes and touches us who are unclean with sin, and he makes us fit for God's presence through his power. Jesus makes the unclean clean. So think about it. Why did, this, why did Jesus touch this man? <laughs> why did he touch him? Say, well, come on, he was healing the guy. That's how he did it. But did Jesus have to touch him to heal him? Because we have other stories where Jesus just simply looked at a person and says, be healed, and they're healed, right? And there are even accounts where Jesus isn't even present. Somebody says, hey, I'm going to heal, and the the guy goes back, and Jesus isn't even around, and they discover that the person is healed. Why did Jesus touch him? Well, I believe what we have happening here, especially with this man being a leper, is that Jesus touched the man to show that he is the one who makes the unclean clean. He. He is the one who, here it is, John the Baptist shouted this out, Jesus is the one who takes away your sin. Jesus is the one who can remove your uncleanness. So if you get anything else from this story, it's this. And I want you to remember this and understand this. And if Jesus is somebody new to you or you think he's kind of a a gifted teacher and kind of a neat guy and you're kind of interested in spiritual things and you hear you are this morning and you're kind of like, okay, tell me about Jesus. Here's what you need to understand. Jesus is the only one who will make you clean and bring you to God. The only one. Which means that he knows the worst of you which means you can't gross them out. Whatever is embarrassing or shameful, the uncleanness in your heart that you don't ever want to admit to others and you have a hard time even admitting to yourself, Jesus can cleanse you and restore you back into right relationship. So again, this means no one is too unclean to be made clean by Jesus. No one. And I'm going to just kind of belabor this a little bit because we all are very gifted at, yeah, but you don't know how bad I am, or you don't know what I've done, or you don't know the shame that I feel, you don't know how dark my thoughts are, you don't know how vengeful or hateful or lustful or envious or greedy that I really am down here. I mean, everybody else sees this polished version of who I am, and they don't know the real me. And I'm hopeless, you might think. Maybe you feel powerless and held captive by an addiction, and you feel like there's no hope to be rescued. There's no way for you to be made clean. Well, friends, you're in the right place to hear the right story of Jesus because Jesus is the one who can make you clean. He can remove that burden of guilt, that shame. Jesus isn't grossed out by you. He's not. So the question is, is will you ask him to make you clean? Will you? Or maybe the question is, have you ever asked him, like this leper, God, Lord, if you will, make me clean. Have you ever come to Jesus and asked him? And you're like, well, I don't know what he'd say. Yes, you do. Luke recorded it for us. Every unclean person that comes to Jesus and says, God, deliver me. Make me clean. Take away this disease of sin. 
Restore me back into relationship with you. Let me gather with your people. Jesus cleanses. This is what it means to be a Christian, by the way. A Christian is somebody who has been made clean through Christ. By God's power. So Luke moves directly then from that story into another. Jesus, in this story, doesn't clean a leopard. What he does is he heals a paralyzed man. And this is a sensational story, right? These are the kind of stories that you find as a kid if you've grown up in a Christian background with those stories that they stick on those flannel graphs, you know, with little, little people ripping a hole in the roof and letting a guy down. He gets up and walks. Kind of one of those stories that just lingers with you. Sensational in a way. So Jesus heals a paralyzed man. On verse 17, we're told that Jesus is again in a town and he's teaching. And Luke points out this early on in the story. Do you see that? that the power of the Lord was with him to heal. See that in verse 17? So as a reader, we have that little, little kind of a heads up, which means that we are expecting then that Luke is going to tell us a story about Jesus healing someone. So we're all ready for another amazing story about this. Well, as the story continues, we're told that there was a guy who's paralyzed. The only way he can get around is when other people carry him around. And his friends grab his bed, and they are going to take him to Jesus to be healed. I mean, Jesus' fame has spread, and so they, they, they know where Jesus is. He's in this town, he's in this house, and he's teaching, and so they get there, but they run into a problem. They cannot get near Jesus because he's teaching in this house, and the crowd has filled the house, and it's impossible for them to make their way in and get an audience with, with Christ. Well, they're not going to give up, and so they become quite clever and resourceful. I guess it depends on who you are. If you're the homeowner, you may not think that. But we're not the homeowner, so we're like, wow, these guys are clever and resourceful. They got this kind of get-it-done attitude. I like these guys. So they go up to the roof. And again, if you're thinking, how do they get a guy in a bed on the roof of a ladder? Most of the homes would have access to the roof in that day, staircase on the outside. The roof was often part of of extra living space, depending on, on the season and the climate. And so they get up on the roof and they begin to dismantle the roof, begin to tear a hole in the roof. And again, this isn't just kind of like, um, well, it has to be a hole big enough to let a bed down through it. Okay? So Jesus, okay, this is happening, and I'm, I'm assuming that at some point while Jesus is teaching, there's this noise and a ruckus. People aren't looking at Jesus anymore while he's teaching. They're looking at the roof like, what's going on up there? Then they start seeing sunlight break through in the hole and debris is falling through. I'm sure this was not convenient for anyone there. They're probably irritated and upset and the hole gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And then they let this bed down. And on this bed is this guy. By the way, I just have thought how skilled these friends were. They didn't drop the guy off, right? So this fellow gets down in there with Jesus, and Jesus sees their, it says, Luke describes it, he sees their faith with this sensational interruption, and Jesus says to the paralyzed man on his bed, you see in verse 20 what Jesus says? Man, your sins are forgiven. And this is where if we were hearing a story, you kind of have that record, like what? Let's rewind and go back. Um, that is not what was expected. I could imagine that, well, we know, according to Luke's account, there are two groups of people that are disappointed. (laughs) 
The first group is the friends and the guy. <laughs> right? They did all this work and effort. They get him there, and Jesus, the words that he says are not, you're healed. He says, your sins are forgiven. I could imagine the friends and the guy are like, ah, thanks, but no thanks. We're here. I'm here. They did all this, right? So that I could be healed. And there's another group that is upset. Luke describes this other group um, who is the... Well, let me wait there. Let's think about the the men and uh, these friends and the paralyzed person, right? Why does Jesus say that? Your sins are forgiven. It's obvious, I mean, so for instance, we don't think Jesus is just socially confused, like he didn't read the room right. He just kind of, oops. And I'm being... Purpose, I mean, obviously that's not what's going on here. Jesus is very deliberate in what he says. He didn't get it wrong. What's going on here? Well, when Jesus says to the paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, Jesus is saying, in other words, maybe, maybe you think your biggest problem is your paralysis. But it's not. It's your sin. Jesus was saying, you think your most fundamental problem is your physical paralysis? It's not. Your sin is what alienates you from God. Your sins need to be forgiven. Jesus is telling us that, listen, if you went from paralyzed to fully mobile, but your sins aren't forgiven, you haven't come out ahead. In fact, you're in great peril. Jesus is saying, the worst thing I could do for you is to heal you and not forgive your sins. Because now I've just given you a life that's going to head you straight to hell in condemnation because of your sin. You see, there's only one disease that can really destroy us. Only one disease that can really destroy us. I'm not saying that disease can't do horrible things to our bodies in this world. It can. But not ultimately destroy us like sin does. Physical suffering can't destroy you. Not ultimately. But sin can. I mean, actually, think about it this way. The guy's paralysis is actually one of the circumstances that God used to bring him to Jesus. You ever thought, I know you can get in trouble by doing what-ifs, but you ever thought, like, what if the guy hadn't been paralyzed? Would he have ever walked? Would have he ever said, I want to go visit Jesus. I want, to, I want to learn. I want to meet this guy. I wonder. You see, the big question for all of us is this. Are you right with God through Christ? Is your sin forgiven through Jesus? That's the big question of life. Well, I said there were two groups that were upset. first group was the man and his friends. Well, the second one, well, I should say not upset. The first group was probably confused. The second group was outright upset, we're told, because it was the Pharisees. And the Pharisees weren't priests. They weren't scribes. They weren't lawyers of the Old Testament law, but they were zealous about making sure that Israel fulfilled and obeyed God's law. They were kind of like the religious police. And they really wanted to make sure that we didn't disobey God at all, and so they wanted to ensure that none of those commands were broken, and they are deeply troubled and incensed by what Jesus says. They are offended. They have righteous indignation at this guy. How dare he say that? Why? Because they know that only God can forgive sins. 
And we understand this, right? I mean, think about it. Um, I went around in circles trying to figure out how to do this illustration with not getting confused. So hang in with me, okay? Imagine you're walking down, yeah, let's just say down the street, down the sidewalk. Okay? You go for walks, walking through the park, okay? You're on one of the trails, you're walking along, and some guy named Tom walks up to you and punches you. Just walks up and punches you. Because he felt like it. Bad day for you, right? And uh, you're with a friend, and you're hurt, you're offended, you've just been assaulted, right? You're shocked. And your friend who's with you, and if Larry, okay, if you want to have your friend named Laura, fine. But Larry or Laura, whoever, your friend with you says, I can't believe that just happened. And ask the person, how dare you punch my friend? What's your name? And the person says, I'm Tom. I'm not picking on you if your name is Tom in here this morning, okay? Sorry. Tom. You say, Tom, why'd you punch my friend? And you're still kind of recovering from this, and your friend says, it's all right, Tom. I forgive you for punching my friend. It's forgiven. What would you be thinking? (laughs) You're not thinking anything? (laughs) You'd be thinking, wait a minute. You appreciate your friend. Now you're angry at your friend, right? Now you're angry at Tom and your friend because you're like, whoa, slow down here, friend. You can't forgive Tom for what Tom did to me. I'm the only one that can forgive Tom because we understand that you are the only one that can forgive someone for wrong done to you. And so when Jesus looks at this paralyzed man and says, your sins are forgiven, the Pharisees knew exactly what Jesus was claiming. Do you? Jesus was claiming, in the clearest possible way, Jesus was saying this, all sins are against me because I am God. When you lie, it's my command you're breaking. When you mistreat or abuse or treat others with disdain or cruelty or envy, Jesus is saying, you're actually ultimately sinning against me because that person you've sinned against is is my creature created in my image. I am God. You've sinned against me. Jesus is claiming he is God. So what do you think? Is he? Is he? Well, we're told that Jesus perceives their thoughts, okay? The crowd is just kind of in turmoil. The friends are kind of confused, like, hey, man, we came here for a healing, not for a forgiving. And the Pharisees are upset and they're angry. So Jesus knows their skepticism. So he asks them, he says, come on, which is easier to say, rise, uh, your sins are forgiven, or rise and walk? Which is easier to say? So let me ask you this. What do you think? What do you think is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven, or rise and walk? Where are we at in here? I'm going to say it's easier to say your sins are forgiven. Hands? Some of you have no idea what to guess, so you're just keeping your hands down like you're taking notes. All right? How many, how many of you think it's easier to say, rise and walk? Okay. And I, there's a lot of hands that didn't rise, okay? <laughs> well, think about it. Which is easier to say? Jesus tells us in verse 24 that it's easier to say your sins are forgiven because, honestly, how are you going to know that that happened? Prove that you did it. Prove it. Show me the proof. But if you say, rise and walk, well, that's a lot harder because I'm going to say, prove it. And if the guy doesn't get up and walk, well, now I've just proven that you're a liar. And so Jesus tells us in verse 24 and 25, do you see that there? But that you may know, this is why Jesus is doing all this, but that you may know that the Son of Man, that's himself, has authority 
on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And what happens? And immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home glorifying God. So Jesus wants everyone to know what? That he can heal somebody? No, no, no. He wants everyone to know he has authority to forgive sin. Prove it, Jesus. Rise, take up your bed. And he doesn't. So in other words, Jesus has authority to forgive sin. So my question to you this morning is this. Has Jesus forgiven your sin? Or with the leper story, has he made you clean? If not, well then, our invitation, my invitation to you this morning is ask him today. And we'll conclude with this, just a few final thoughts about what's going on here with this story of this paralytic man being healed. What happens when God forgives your sin? You ever think about this? Maybe as Christians, we kind of get familiar with this. We sing about it. We praise God for it. We hear sermons on it. We read about it. We kind of just think God, Jesus, is in the business of forgiving. Big deal. It's kind of like we don't kind of clap for the, for, for the electrician when they, when they wire in our house and they, and they fix a, a wiring problem. We don't kind of clap and say, man, you're so awesome because you did this. We're like, well, that's what they do. That's what they're licensed to do. That's what they're trained to do. Big deal. What happens when God forgives your sin? Well, the answer to that is found when we think about what happens when we forgive wrongdoing. When you forgive someone that has done wrong to you, are you simply saying, ah, don't worry about it. That's no big deal. It really, really wasn't that bad. It's okay. You know, I guess you had some good reasons for why you did that wrong, so big deal, just never mind. Is that forgiveness? I would say no. That's excusing sin. And I think it was C.S. Lewis who said, who wrote that for a long time, C.S. Lewis kind of understood God's forgiveness kind of like that. The guy was excusing what we've done. Like, what we've done really isn't that bad. It really wasn't a big deal. We actually kind of have some good reasons for why we've been doing these bad things. And God just kind of says, no, nah, I get it, and kind of excuses it. But that's not what the Bible teaches forgiveness. You see, when a sin is forgiven, the injustice and the penalty for the wrongdoing is paid. It is absorbed by someone. So who pays and absorbs the cost when something is forgiven? And the answer is this, the one who does the forgiving, the one who forgives, is paying the price, is absorbing the cost. When you forgive someone, you are saying, I will not get revenge or take vengeance to exact the price and payment for the wrong that you did to me, not me personally. This means that when God forgives you, he absorbs, he pays for the injustice the treason, the wrong that you have done to him. And the wrong you have done to God, by the way, far, far, far outweighs any wrong someone has done to you. And I believe I can say that confidently. And there are atrocities that happen that people have done to each other in our world. Horrible things. But God is holy and perfect and righteous and good. And we do him wrong. We sin against his goodness, his holiness, his righteousness. We defy his rule and reign. We snub our noses at him with arrogance and pride, choosing our way against his way, thinking that we are gods, that we are king. So what does all this mean? Well, you remember when Jesus asked, which is harder to say, your sins are forgiven, or rise and walk? 
And we understand that one is easier to say, right? One is harder to say. It's easier to say your sins are forgiven. It's harder to say rise and walk. But let me ask you a different question. Which is harder to do? Which is harder to do? Is it harder to make a paralyzed person walk? Or is it harder to forgive sin? And I believe the answer is that the scriptures teach us that it is harder to forgive sin. And what Luke is lifting out here is who Jesus is, his pivotal person. I mean, there's a whole new category in Time Magazine now. Not innovator, not tight, not pioneer, forgiver, cleanser. And there's only one name under that category, and it's Jesus of Nazareth. Because to forgive sin, friends, Jesus will put himself on the cross. God will die for what you should die for. Jesus will take on himself the penalty. He will pay the price. He will absorb the cost for all the evil that you have done or ever will do or ever said or ever thought. In other words, in the case of the paralyzed man, Jesus will give up his freedom, as it were, so to speak, right? And he will be nailed to a cross immobile so that you can be set free from your sin. Do you see what Luke is showing us who Jesus is? Or in the case of the leper, Jesus is going to suffer the shame and humiliation of being unclean. He will die outside of the city on a cross as an outcast so that all who have been outcast and separated from God by their sin can be cleansed and brought in to be with Jesus forever, to be with God forever. To forgive sin, Jesus will be forsaken by God so that you who have been forsaken in your sin can be welcomed by God. So the only proper response to this is described in verse 26 of our passage, right? And amazement sees them all. Amazement sees them all. I mean, this is better than any product any tech company has ever put to market. Something radical is happening here. You mean I am unclean and I can be made clean? Yes, You mean I'm paralyzed? I can't do anything on my own to make myself right with God and God can forgive me of my sin? Yes. How? Through Jesus. That's how. That's who he is. This is what he's done. This is who he is. And so I would like to ask you, as you consider all this, who is Jesus then to you? You may be religious for a long time. You may be coming to church for a long time. You may be familiar with this kind of a story and think that's so cool that Jesus does that kind of stuff. But let's press the point in a little bit further. Has Jesus cleansed you? Have you asked him to forgive you of your sin? And if not, here's the good news. He will. Just like the leper, if you will, make me clean. Jesus touches him, you're clean. Just like the paralyzed man, he's there to be healed and he gets even more than he asked for. You are forgiven. Friends, that's what you need most. This is what we need most. And if you have tasted and experienced the forgiveness of God through Christ, well, let me encourage you to live in that reality. You have reason to give thanks today. You have reason to praise God. I'm not saying that life is easy, that problems aren't there in life. I'm not saying any of that goes away or is is gone, but it gives perspective. Friends, our biggest issue, our biggest problem has been solved by God through Christ.